0: Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bougay, and I'm here with Rachel Nadel. What's going on, Rachel? Hey, Chris, I have a story to share. I love your story. Okay, so um,
1: I have talked in the past about some of my clients who have been a little hesitant to start using assistive technology tools. Um, mostly conversations I've had with a family about how, or teachers, how they don't want the student to become reliant on the assistive technology, and they fear that they're not actually learning, um, you know, some fundamental skills because the assistive technology tools coming in and doing things like word prediction and grammar and spelling check and all the things, right? <clears throat> so this one specific student I'm thinking about that was the case. And everyone was saying like, oh, we have to teach him how to spell and we have to teach him all these things. And I, of course, was advocating for how much this tool has helped um, you know, the student in my sessions. And I've been kind of fighting with the district on implementing um, specific assistive technology tools that I have been using very successfully in my practice.
0: They and think it's going to be a crux,
1: a crutch. Exactly. We don't want them to to miss this learning opportunity. I think that's like the big kind of idea. And the family has been a little bit on the fence and ultimately has trusted me and said, you know, do what you want during your sessions. Like we love he loves, you know, coming to see you and the sessions are really helpful and you know, whatever you think is best. But I could tell, especially like dad has been like a little resistant. So anyway, um, we've been doing um, using Google Read and Write in uh, our sessions, and I'd say probably for about a year. And we don't use it every session, but I really like working on writing with this student because he's actually very creative, and he has a hard time formulating expressively. So when he's telling a story, he kind of gets stuck with you know not always using the right syntax and grammar and. It's just like, you can tell it's a hard process for him, but he can very much formulate via writing. And so we've been working on telling stories and telling them in writing first and then kind of doing like a, not a story retell. I guess it would be a story retell, but him figuring out what he wants to say via writing and practicing that skill and then sharing expressively the story. And so um, the other day we... And, you know, we've also been incorporating like reading comprehension and inferential thinking and lots of other things into this. So it's like we'll oftentimes do some type of summary um, in writing after we've watched a short little video clip of an animated short or we've read a, a, a reading passage. He loves Percy Jackson. And so we will sometimes read a chapter of Percy Jackson and summarize it. And so there's lots of different skills that we've been working on. So the other day uh, for Halloween, we actually did uh, a creative writing assignment. So I was like, oh, let's get like something really fun going. Because I feel like sometimes, you know, we're working on things that he's interested in, but aren't always like super creative. And he's very creative. And so anyway, I did um, this really fun um, rating exercise. And it was like, I started off by just giving him like this prompt. It's like, you've got a a train ticket on a spooky train. And like the next thing, you know, and then I'll just stop. And like, he kind of comes in and fills in the rest of the sentence. And then we did something different this time, which was, we went back and forth because I realized when I opened it up to just like, you could say anything right now, he actually struggled a lot, which I think a lot of our students, this is very common. It's just like, I don't know if if I could say anything. I don't even know what I could say, you know, having just like open up to anything as possible, especially because this is like a silly, spooky story. It can be anything you want. He kind of struggled. And so I like hopped in and decided every other sentence I would write for him. And we would kind of, co-create this story back and forth improv you're doing improv exactly it was so fun he was so excited and not only did we create this amazing story um but he what was really cool was that we started working on some dialogue so I'm also working on kind of social pragmatics with this student and having conversational turns and you know all of those skills started kind of coming out in this story and I would say you know And I would say really crazy things like, and then all of a sudden, a baby alligator jumped on my lap and started dancing like, just as crazy as I could get in my own mind. We started like, and then he took that ball and he ran with it. And then I said, I started doing dialogue back and forth. And it was such a fun exercise. Um, And the coolest part was to see how far the student has come with the assistive technology. He was highlighting his sentences hitting the play button to listen to them back. He was going through and using the um, spell check and grammar check all independently. And it was so great because at the end I said, okay, do you think we're finished with our story? And he's like, we're finished. And he independently goes, he highlights the whole paragraph. He listens to it back. He fixes all the errors. I actually got this on camera. Like I started recording because it was just so beautiful. And he just independently created the most beautiful story. Um, And so it was just like such a small win. Um, Afterwards, which was the most fun part, we actually went into Canva and we created a picture based on this crazy story. And we used the AI uh, magic application on Canva because like we were talking about like dancing alligators and flying guinea pigs and just like the craziest things. And the AI tools actually created images of these things. Um, I imported him into it because he was a part of the story and it was just so much fun. And I sent the video and the story, and by the way, the story was designated, I would write in red and he would write in black. So I told the family, like, the things that are in red are, are me, but everything else is him and everything is independent. Like I didn't help him at all with this. And so I sent the story, I sent the, um, the video of him going through and independently using the tool. And then afterwards, I, I also sent and attached the image that we made. And I said, pull this up for him and see if he can share the story. And so I got to text her mom after our session. She said, oh my gosh, I can't believe he did this by himself. We watched everything. I asked him about it. He told us the story and the parent had the story to reference, right? And then I got a a message uh, this week and it was, we actually shared this with his teacher and they want to use it in class. And I was like, oh my gosh, finally, like we've done it. Like I've convinced him that like, this is something that's so helpful for him. So anyway, I just wanted to share that small win because I just, sometimes it takes a second to get people on board. And it was just like such a great activity. He did so well with it. And it was kind of combining all the things, like all the things that we've been working on with fun, engaging, you know, activities that he got really excited about and then creating that visual. He's like using Canva now totally independently and we were using the AI tool. He's like, no, right, like dancing alligator. And he was like helping me like type things in so that we could get a more refined, you know, image. So it was just such a great session.
0: Oh, it sounds awesome. I mean, you can see the giant smile on my face. My my cheeks are cramping from this story because um, you said it. You said the word fun. It's super fun. And it uh, shows the, that technology can be used and is most likely used to enhance skills, not lose skills, right? Uh you just said he's 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 now a better speller. He knows how to use the tools to confirm that he's spelling things correctly, to confirm that he didn't leave out little words, that that what his eyes might be reading might be, might be unreliable. So he needs to listen to it as well, and then go back and make, uh, so that he uses multi, a multi-sensory approach to doing his editing, uh, to make sure the this, this story is telling the, the way it wants it to be. He's making edits like adding adjectives like he said dancing instead of just yeah. you know alligators um all of those are awesome skills that yeah i guess maybe he could have learned some other way i just would speculate that it'd be a lot harder you know and a lot less uh a lot more drudgery than the fun experience that he had that he was excited to share with the rest of his family so i i hope that this sort of story acts as a catalyst for Other uh, educators and other parents out there or other parents who are educating their kids to say, lean into the technology, lean in to use it for the powers of good. Exactly. And,
1: you know, what's really fun when you're doing some type of creating creative writing assignment is that it can be as as specific uh, an interest and a passion as possible right and it can be anything which i think is sometimes like i said a little bit hard for some students which is why i kind of jumped in and gave him fun ideas but he's he loves trains and so i was like it's a train ticket like where are we going? we're on a train which he automatically got so excited about and so i think you can pull in a student's specific you know passions and interests and you can incorporate those types of things into what you're doing, Um, especially, you know, as as SLPs, like we have a lot of creative license. Um, I know that sometimes teachers have to follow specific curriculums, but it doesn't mean that you can't like fuse in fun and engagement and and choice making, because I feel like oftentimes it's like this very specific thing that kids are asked to do. And if we just opened it up to be a little bit more creative and give kids a little more choice as to what they're writing about, what they're reading about, what they're doing to Demonstrate curricular knowledge. It just think about how much better a school would be and how much more fun it would be.
0: Voice and choice and flexibility is definitely the, the name of the game. Uh, let me ask you this this particular student um, does not have a visual impairment, right? I mean, can see Canva. Uh, that's not one of the concerns that, that you have about this particular student. Correct. He's very strong visually. Um, but I mentioned this multisensory approach, and that kind of leads us into the interview today. Um, the interview today is with Scott. Speech language pathologists that work for a Perkins School of the Blind, and they actually came up to us at um, ATIA, and we were having a conversation. And this is one of those that ATIA is right around the corner at the time of this re- this recording. But a year, almost a year ago now, is when we met these particular um, speech language pathologists and said, "Oh, you got to come on the podcast." And so we we have, and we're going to have the the interview you're about to hear is all about. Um, Adopting a multisensory approach to help people who may have some form of visual impairment. T-A-A. We've been doing this now for a couple of years and it's always super fun time. It's uh, a great experience. And so this, this is a whole, what, a whole day together doing a pre conference.
1: I love our pre conference, Chris. It's just like such an amazing group every single year. And Every single year, it's totally different. I feel like it's never the same day twice and just full of tons of fun activities and lots of engaging conversations.
0: And by the end of it, we're all like BFFs and it's so much fun. So if you're interested in attending, check us out at atia.org, find the pre-conference link, find us and sign up and we'll see you there. Welcome to the Talking with Tech podcast. My name is Chris Bougay, and I'm joined with a bunch of people from, well, I'm going to let them introduce themselves and say where they work. So, Emily, you want to kick us off?
2: Sure. Hi there. This is Emily Macklin, speech language pathologist at Perkins School for the Blind and the Deaf Blind School. And I'm Neha
3: Sharma. I'm a speech and language pathologist at Perkins School and also in the Deaf Blind School.
4: I'm Amber Scary and same as everyone else, speech language pathologist at Perkins DeafBlind.
0: Excellent. So you're all working at Perkins DeafBlind. So tell us, what is that? Where is that? Give us the, the lowdown on Perkins. Uh, So we are located in Watertown, Massachusetts, and
3: the Perkins School for the Blind is quite a large campus with different programs and different schools for students with vision impairment. Um, Our school in particular is the place for deaf-blind students, and those are students that have a deficit in their hearing and vision and a combination of both. Um, Our school is for students ages 3 to 22-year-olds. Um, We have a wide variety of different types of profiles for our students. They all have this dual sensory loss. Um, And we are a total communication program, which means we try to use every single type of modality of communicating that um, we can offer. So that could look like speaking verbally, but also signing. Um, We do tactile signing, we use whole objects to represent concepts and um, places and people, we use photographs and drawings and tangible or like tactile symbols, and then of course augmentative communication as well. Um, Our students are very different from each other, so how we approach them and what we work or how we work with them are very different. Um, We have such a multi-sensory approach to our teaching and our language development, um, and that is something that they need, especially given their dual sensory loss. Um, what do I mean by dual sensory impairment? It means a complete or a partial loss of two or more senses, which is typically vision and hearing. Um, one of the big myths that I would like to bust right now is that um, deaf-blindest does not mean completely deaf and completely blind at all times. So our students have varying degrees of loss on each of those senses. Um, We could absolutely have students that are completely deaf and are completely blind, but we right now in our program of almost 55 students, we only have one student that is completely deaf and completely blind. Um, And then another myth is that, you know, not all students are gonna need the same support. So our students are really coming with their own unique profile. So we need to really address their unique needs Individually, and like I said, the dual sensory impairment is a huge range, and it can, you know, come about from a lot of different etiologies, congenital, acquired. Um, a lot of our students have charge syndrome, and. A lot of our students come from rubella backgrounds and Usher syndrome, you know, brain injuries, seizure disorder. So it's really a spectrum of um, profile for our students. And like I said before, it's really, really a big, big range of how they can present.
0: All right, well, let me ask you this. So here you are, the three of you working at Perkins. Let's say a new student comes, shows up at Perkins. What does that onboarding look like? And how do you figure out where to go? What interventions to use? And the reason I ask that is because people listening to this podcast might, well, I don't work at Perkins, but I certainly have a student with deafblindness. So what do I do? You know, where do I start?
3: I think yeah. great Emily, things. before you get started, can I just add one quick thing? Yeah. I think it's really important to realize that our students have this very limited um, access to incidental learning that a lot of our students um, with typical hearing and typical vision have access to. And so that's that learning that happens outside of direct teaching and that is really through observation and kind of taking their whole world and processing it within themselves. So our students really, really require the experiential learning. So that is really hands-on do by function and do by things that are gonna be meaningful and functionally for them. Um, So I just wanted to put that caveat out there.
0: Well, that's great advice, I mean, really, to be thinking through from an educator lens, like, oh, okay, I know that sort of just stuff up on the walls might where other people might be able to glance up and see something or ancillary conversations after a lesson is over, a conversation might be happening where people are digesting it, those sorts of incidental where it's not uh, planned, necessarily, it's just sort of there. Um people with deafblindness might have less opportunities to uh, learn content from those sorts of experiences. So we have to be more intentional about what we are intentionally teaching. Was that fair?
2: Exactly. And there's a huge risk for sensory deprivation, especially when you have this dual sensory impairment. So it's being really intentional of bringing the learning to the student. Um, it's something we're always thinking about because we learn so much from early childhood, just from observing others around us. So if you have less access to that, it's really important to bring that access right to the student. Um, that, that's something that's a day-to-day uh, strategy that we're using
0: throughout the day. Emily, can I give an example there where I've learned from a teacher of the visually impaired? Um, I was working with a student with a visual impairment once once upon a time, and he had some residual sight and mm-hmm. was um, using his hands to it, sort of uh, his fingers sort of to 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 move them in front of his eyes, right? And the the teacher, the visually impaired, whispers to him in a a prompt, remember, other people can see you, which fine, wave in front of your hands, but just know, do it if you want to do it. It's not, she wasn't saying don't do that. She was just sort of prompting this where anyone else who might be able to see would recognize, oh, if I'm, you know, doing something with my hands, I might be able to see other people around me reacting to that, right? Um, and so it's just an interesting cue and I feel like that's an example of what you're sort of talking about as, as you might have to be a little bit more um, direct in sort of saying, just remember, this is a thing that uh, some other people might not have to think about because it just sort of happens with experiences. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
4: A few um, examples that I like to think about um, when we're talking about like incidental and, you know, um, learning. Someone with sight would kind of look at a forest and see that there's a bunch of trees there, but someone who's deafblind wouldn't just feel one tree. They would have to feel all the trees to understand the concept of a forest. Um, so that's something that you know, a student who's sighted, you you wouldn't even think you bring them to the woods all the time and they just see that there's a bunch of trees. But someone who's deafblind, you would really have to go and feel all the trees. Another example is um someone told me this story once about someone who's deafblind who didn't realize that buildings, when you were inside of them had roofs on top until one day they felt the roof and they were like, whoa, I am in a box. Um, so those are just a few examples of things that you might not think about. But um, for our deafblind students, we really need to fully teach them um, in a more hands-on kind of way.
0: Well, these are great examples, which brings us back to the question, Emily. Yep. Yeah. I, get, well, I get a student with uh, abilities like this and I think, yeah. well, okay, that, those are two examples that I wouldn't have thought of How do I learn to think about them and uh, what do I do? How do I start?
2: Absolutely. So first off, congrats that you have a DeafBlind student. You have an opportunity to learn about the world with a completely (laughs) different perspective. Um, I learned so much from working with our DeafBlind students about the world itself, things I've taken for granted and perspectives I haven't taken. Um, So buckle up and you'll have a learning opportunity ahead of you. So room for growth. We We all have it. Um, I'd start with... Wait, Emily, can I interrupt you for
0: one second? Of course. What's an example? Can you think of an example of like, before I started working with deafblind students, this, but now that I've been working with deafblind students, I've evolved to think like this.
2: I think the explicit teaching part of it, um, taking things for granted throughout grad school and our education, we, we kind of just think about You know, through natural opportunities, they'll learn this natural language development. They're going to learn this, they're going to acquire this. Um, But working with really skilled teachers of deafblind children, um, I've had awesome experiences learning about um, what is an apple and what makes an apple an apple. It might be a fruit I eat, or maybe I don't eat by mouth, but peers of mine eat by mouth. And uh, what does an apple really mean to me? And then learning that actually going to the orchard and climbing up the tree. Um, or if someone's helping you kind of lift and grab an apple down, holding it. Coming back to school, cutting it. An apple without being cut feels different than a cut apple. What are those things inside? I never thought about that. Let's feel around. Those are the seeds that next thing you know, you're in a gardening activity, you're planting seeds, but it's all hands on. And I, I think I learned a lot by learning alongside my students about the process that things I've taken for granted we need to explicitly teach and we want them to have these, um, these real natural opportunities to learn about our world.
0: I feel like I would agree.
2: And I was just going to say too, that it's breaking
3: down the things that we again, take for granted, but breaking it down to all the steps. And the thing for me that was huge was their tactile sense is so important. And there's so much that they're taking in from their world through their tactile sense. And It's just one of those things you read about like Helen Keller, like, yeah, sure. She touched everything and that's how she learned. But when you see it in action, it is absolutely, I mean, humbling for us, but also to say, wow, this is an area where I can really work and help build
0: off of. Well, I have to say, I feel like these sorts of experiences, um, help you become better therapists and educators for any student right like and this way uh, everyone learns from all of their different senses and all their different modalities so provide as many different modalities as possible and making it as practical and experiential as possible makes it stick more um and and makes it easier to understand than some sort of um abstract picture in a book about what an orchard is or a little video about an orchard is you're actually in the orchard yeah. here Hearing the sounds, smelling the smells, crunching the crunchy apple, uh, having it slip out of your hand and you're squashing it as you're walking on it, you know, all of that sort of thing is, is, it, it, then having taken all that. You get to say, well, let's let's apply this to everybody. Let's just use this this for everybody. So again, Emily, I'm stepping all okay. over your, yeah, how do we no, get no. started? <laughs> so,
2: for, so first, get ready to learn because you're absolutely going to learn. You have to take on the role as not just the teacher or the clinician, but also the student because you're going to be learning about their perspective and their world. Um, where I'd start is relationship building. That rapport and trust is absolutely paramount with this population, um, with pretty much every population, but with medical interventions, a lot of our students are medically complex, and we have to think about how much um, medical intervention, surgeries, doctors, they've been kind of poked and prodded through a lot of their childhood. So building a really strong relationship and trust that you're, you know, a a safe and trusted adult, you know, a lot of our work is hands-on because we're using tactile sign language and very um, very close together with the child, so I really would emphasize not rushing that process. Build a trusting, um, pr- trusting relationship with the student and their family. Get to know what they love. Embed that into everything. Embed their interests into therapy activities and um,
0: and academics. Emily, can I ask here? To to me, the way to do that potentially, is Mm -hmm. to ask a lot of questions. You said to get to know them. So really starts with um, asking questions to get to know them, as opposed to what I think some people might do is... Jump right in and tell me what to do. We need to start yeah. doing this. We need to start doing that. Let's get going. We're wasting time if we don't, right? No, let's take yeah. time to get to know who you are and what <laughs> what um, what drives you, and then you can work from there. And then they know that they can trust you. Is that fair? Observe
2: them, observe them for a while, kind of in natural opportunities as they arise. Rely heavily on the family because they are really the experts on that child. So you, each discipline will have their own lens that they're looking for to treat clinically or the teacher- For academics, but the family knows their child. So Mm -hmm. that's a really important um route to take is to ask what they like, what they don't like, when they feel or when they perceive them as being sad and happy. Uh, We wanna use that to that information to our advantage because we we wanna set up safe and fun learning environments um, and kind of get off on the right foot. It's it's about being really curious and knowing that you don't know everything and being excited to learn it all.
4: I was going to say, Chris. Oh, sorry, Emily. Um, I was just going to say, when you say um, that you ask questions to get to know a student. I feel like it's a really interesting phrase because asking questions to our deafblind students can look very different than, um, you know, at a traditional school. I think that, like you said, Emily, really observing their body language and the things that they maybe keep coming back to tactilely. If you have a bunch of things out on the table or um, something on a frame, we'll be talking about that a little bit later. But um, I think that talking to the teachers, talking to the family about what they like, but really kind of observing and having a shared Tactile experience with something, seeing how long they engage, are they laughing? Um, that's kind of like us asking them questions. Yeah.
2: It's not always in a traditional sense. It's a lot of observation. Body language, facial expressions, overall demeanor tell us so much, and we can go off that and we can build joint experiences together in this way. Uh, it's really important to think about how maybe typical priorities might look different for a clinician. So if you were getting at um something in a for coming from a public school you might need to kind of change your lens and change your approach because this will be a little bit different um, something i'd say you get a deafblind student on your caseload something i'd say to be careful with is what we call the fairy godmother syndrome um, where things just kind of appear and disappear and often we have really really passionate and motivated staff members who just want the best for our students. So if there's any way they can help, they wanna help. Um, We wanna not over help. um, And with that, we wanna look at kind of prompting hierarchy and not over supporting. And with that fairy godmother syndrome, we don't want objects to just appear out of nowhere and then disappear out of nowhere. We want really a beginning, middle and end to an opportunity, a learning opportunity. And actually everything is a learning opportunity where things don't just end up on my wheelchair tray out of nowhere, we're talking about what they are. Maybe we retrieve them together. When we're done with them, we jointly put them into a finish bucket. That's really important for the learning or else you kind of just learn that I'm passive in my environment and things just come to me when other people decide they come to me. So be really careful of that. And it often comes from really, really positive and good intentions but we wanna set our students up for an, um, a fruitful, autonomous, and independent life. So that's something to be careful about. And then yeah. there's some universal um, there's some universal things that we like to follow because it might work really well for one peer in a classroom and the rest of the classroom don't necessarily need it, but just getting used to um, getting in the habit of saying your full name when you enter a room and when, when you're greeting someone, hello, it's Emily Macklin. You might want to add a little context. It's time for speech class. Some, something like that. Really helpful because then you're not singling out one student kind of needs that reminder of name. I did full name because I happen to have a very common first name within our school building. Um, but maybe just, hey, it's Emily, it's time for speech. Something like that. If you get in the habit of doing that with everyone, you're not singling anyone out. And one more thing we do kind of universally is we have tactile symbol name markers. So Get In The Habit, we all wear ID badges, um, and they have a little tactile symbol attached to that, and that means that's me as a person. And that's just something to get into the habit with everyone if they're interested in kind of exploring that. This is who I am. It's a tactile way to represent me. And once again, it's not singling any student out as needing that. Nothing wrong with needing it, but we just get in the habit of doing it for everyone
0: you find emily that that's the strategy or really any of you that that's the strategy you use for preventing the fairy godmother syndrome as well meaning um we pre- prevent we present things in multiple modalities so there's a tactile way of saying this is coming up um maybe like a tell me if I'm way off here, like some sort of rope with beads and this bead means we're coming first and this next bead, we're coming, this thing's coming next. And this last bead means, and each bead is a different shape, like something like that. Uh, Is that what you're sort of meaning as um, providing a multi-sensory approach? So they're hearing that this thing is coming, they're seeing something maybe, um, and they're feeling it. And you're, again, why not do that for any kid?
2: Yeah, I think so. And a lot of that will be tied right into a strong calendar or a schedule system. Amber is. Excellent uh, talking through this, Amber. Do you want to take take those away? <laughs> I was just going to say that. Yeah, um, I think
4: you're, you know, right on the money, Chris. Um, something that we do that I would consider starting with your student right when they um, start at your school, as well as creating a calendar system um, for them. It, and like Neha was saying, all of our students are really um, individualized and you have to create individualized plans for each of them. Um, and some of our students might do better with whole objects some photos, some partial objects. So creating the calendar system based on where their understanding of communication is. Um, If they're really at the beginning of communication, you would create a whole object based on um, something that they experienced what's the best is if it's an actual piece of the activity um, so exa- for an example if they go to gym class and they always do a certain sport like maybe baseball having a baseball be the object that represents that class and then you'd set up, set up a schedule for them um, again depending on the student sometimes they are able to understand a schedule that has their whole day laid out um, other students, you show them the, the object of the activity they're going to right before the activity. They bring it to the activity, and then they bring it back to class and put it in a finished box. Very concrete. We are going here. We are literally bringing it to that place, so you can pair the object with the activity. And then we're putting in the finished and on to the next whole object representing the next activity. Um,
0: can, can I ask you a clarifying question there? Mm-hmm. So. Something that I'm sort of hearing is that you are pairing an object with the activity. Is mm-hmm. it pairing one object or is it pairing multiple? So for instance, scenario number one, I'm teaching you about baseball and we're gonna talk about verbs like hitting and running and playing and um, and that what baseball is. And so here's this baseball. And so I give it to you and feel it and feel how that's like uh, round, right? And how it's hard mm-hmm. and you might use vocabulary like that. Um, is it then we go play baseball or is it here's a baseball and then this is another thing that's part of baseball. Here's a bat. Feel the bat and touch the bat and see how long it is and see how it's hard like the baseball. And then here's a third thing that is also associated with baseball. It's this glove and it's softer and it goes on your hand, right? And look, squeeze it, you know, and the ball goes inside and you do some sort of experience like that. Um, yeah. Or So is it tying it to one thing or is it tying to multiple things or is it as most things it depends what what do you think that's
4: that's (laughs) a great question um i do think it depends on the student definitely um you want to make sure that you stick with the same object to represent the same kind of like class but once you're in that class i would definitely you know do the whole experience show them a bunch of different objects like you were saying if you wanted to teach them the term hit then use a different object from the one that represented the class or the game like a baseball and now baseball can represent the word hit and you know maybe running you use a piece of a cleat Um, and then what we love to do is make sure that a lot of those kind of terms are generalized so if you're going to show them running for track you know what I mean, time to run, bring that cleat back and start running with them after they touch the cleat. Um, But again, it really depends on the students. Some of our students are so concrete that they really need the exact object that they're going to do in that class to understand that that's the class they're going to um you're talking about like a great level of much higher level language that um would be amazing to get to are a lot of our students at that level with partial object representation right now no but um that is the big idea
0: yeah i would imagine they get to that by showing them those words and teaching them those words right as opposed to just someday they'll get there without having those experiences we have to do that intentionally
2: Definitely. And having those real experiences with those exact objects. So that natural functional practice of actually with a bat holding it, learning about it. We talked about how it's wood and it feels smooth. And then with the baseball that I've been familiar with, I've been exploring, I feel the um, I feel the smooth leather. Then we're gonna together hit the baseball and then we're practicing the movement. So in that way, we're embedding some movement and some tactile sense, once again, which might be a strength, and it's that real functional practice with these objects, which are often the most meaningful kind of symbolic form for the students who are just learning to perhaps experience the world outside of them. Yeah, and I was just going to
3: say the, the overarching theme I'm hearing is that we're really trying to take something that's abstract and make it as concrete as possible. And in order to do that, you have to touch all the things, you have to experience the movement, because again, that sense of doing and that kinesthetic sense for them is going to be huge in learning actions that they can't see or that they can't hear happen. And so how do we get them to learn that? Well, they have to do it. And we have to kind Mm -hmm. of make that a concrete sort of experience for them.
4: One other um, interesting tidbit, when we're talking about this like higher level language, but using objects or partial object symbols, the tactile connections toolkit has these interesting backings that have different shaped and colored They're different colors, but they also have different shaped tops, and that different shape represents a different part of speech. So if you do have a student who is really building their vocabulary and you want to show them these are all verbs, these are all people, um, you would use the different shaped top backing. I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself because we haven't even really talked about, like, moving from objects to partial object symbols yet. But, um, you know, the backing is kind of what you mount the object or the partial object on. Um, So using different shaped backings can help a student with that higher level language distinguish. Oh, this is a verb I'm, I'm running right now. Oh, this is a person. You know what I
0: mean? Okay. I feel like we're going to come back to that because it so- yeah. there sounds like there was a lot to um, to that. Like, it sounds like mm-hmm. there's already a group of people, tell me if I'm wrong here, that have sort of said, if you're teaching baseball, use a baseball as opposed to a bat or a mitt or having to come up with it on your own. And there's some guidelines here about what you, or at least a place you can go to kind of have a universal experience. Like, again... Th- 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 deafblindness has been around for a while and people have been teaching it for a while. So I'm sure people have learned uh, teaching kids with deafblindness for a while. So they've learned some tips and tricks and maybe there's some resources people can go to, to say, "Hmm, I'm not sure how to teach this. Oh, well here, go here. It's going to have where uh, it's going to have these objects that you start with, or like you said, Amber, partial objects that you evolve to. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Emily, let me. There's other one other thing that you were saying that I want to drive all the way back to, Mm -hmm. which is you are introducing yourself and you're saying, "Hi, my name's Emily uh, Macklin." You say that each time. It's time for speech, giving context of who you are, and then you said you have some sort of tactile object on your name badge. How Mm -hmm. do you? What does that tactile object look like? Are you talking about like a Braille symbol for Emily, or are you talking about this? random swirl that goes for emily or is it alphanumeric emily what what is that tactile thing that you put on your name badge when you introduce yourself each time
2: such a good question so this could be something that's completely random i would recommend um it be something that reminds the person of you so if you wear a specific bracelet or ring every day those are excellent things as you're kind of connecting with the hands that the student will likely encounter. um, If you have very long nails or something's kind of distinct about how your hands feel, those are excellent markers. For me, I wear an Apple watch every day with these silicone bands. Um, So while I do change the color in the season, my tactile symbol will always be the same. It's a piece of the watch band because that is something that is every single day, always on my wrist, always in the same place. It's predictable about me. And for my students, I'm the only one, only staff member that that is their symbol. So it's paired with my name sign. Um, it's paired with my verbally saying my name and it's my watch. Other people have a bit of a more um, a unique symbol. So that could go for someone else who happens to wear a silicone Apple watch, but that is my name symbol. Um, so no one else on their staff would use that symbol. And if they do wear Apple watches, it would be distinguished in some way because it's important they know the people
0: um differently. Let's go around the horn. Neha, what what's your symbol? I feel like this is like me talking to <laughs> Prince and like this is my symbol for, for <laughs> Prince. Right, right. right <laughs> <totally>.
3: <laughs> um, I actually have, I always wear a hair uh, hair elastic, this kind, not a big scrunchie or anything, but it's this one and a beaded bracelet that I have on my arm. So those are my my markers. Gotcha, and Amber? Well, it's interesting. I used to
4: have this mountain um, ring that I would always wear on my thumb. As you can see, I don't have it on my thumb right now. Um, But I've seen my um, students now starting to feel my engagement ring, which is rectangular. A lot of people have engagement rings, but I just got engaged pretty recently. So it's interesting that my students looking for my thumb and then they go and feel my ring. And now they're starting to just go to my engagement ring to see who I am.
0: This um, what you're talking about here feels like really a lot of fun. Meaning, um, like picking out your avatar for Zoom or for you know any sort of uh, service that you're signing up for, and you get to decide what image you want or what uh, avatar you want to use. It's sort of, sort of what do I want to use to represent who I am and help kids learn who I am. Uh, yeah. That's and another- that sounds fun.
3: I was just going to say another really interesting thing too is that you know you can pick what you want your tactile marker to be, but sometimes it's also great to have your student kind of explore and like, if you notice they're always gravitating to something about you, then that can be it because that's meaningful for them. Similarly, um, in the deaf community, in the deafblind community, um, everybody has a name sign. So rather than signing your whole name with all the letters every single time, um, it's usually the initial letter or some other sign like glasses depending on that person so that when you're introducing yourself you have your tactile marker you have your name sign and that name sign is always given by someone in the community so that's really kind of a nice connection to that community that that person has enough of a built-up trust and relationship with you that they say you know what I'm going to give you this name sign, so that now we have this connection and always introduce yourself name sign, verbal, your tactile marker. It's, again, that total communication. It's everything all at once at the same time.
0: This feels to me like... um uh, a grandmother thinking they're going to be called Mimi or something. And the child says, you're, you're not, you know what I mean? And it's like, okay, I guess I'm not on now, right? Because uh, you might think it's going to be one thing, but it's really following the child's lead to become something else.
2: And okay. you, we offer all the modes too, but it's really up to them what they're kind of um, honing in on. So that's our job as a staff is to of provide all these options and what works for them what's easiest accessible um that that's what they're going to go with neha and i once shared a student who um while we had our tactile markers we had our name signs hello it's time for speech but what she was really interested in was feeling your shoes for that day so we had all of our things ready that's kind of our standard start but what she wanted she was very curious on what shoes you're wearing so she'd feel where you are, she'd go towards the ground, she would feel your shoelaces, or if you didn't have shoes, that was very interesting to her. She was flexible if you were wearing different shoes that day, but she kind of knew people by the types of shoes they usually wore. And that was her method and her style. So what we are is available for following your lead, um, but it's it's our job to creatively think of, of other ways that we can present so that a student can identify like, actually this mode really works for me. This is how I'm gonna identify you or, um, we want to just empower them to find what works for them.
0: Okay. So if I, let, let me see, see, if this is the time to move on to the next thing, Amber, that you were sort of referencing. So we have these full objects to help represent concepts. We do very experiential learning, but then we don't stop there. We evolve to saying, okay, this is what a baseball is, but then here's another representation of a baseball that yeah. um like maybe text uh, maybe braille depending on the kid Um, right so tell tell me more where do we go from there
4: yeah so you start with the baseball um, and then as you are seeing that they're maybe they don't have to fully feel the whole baseball anymore maybe they're touching the baseball and now they they know Um, you can kind of get a sense of when it's time to start moving down to a partial object symbol Um, and you really want to take like a piece of the skin of the baseball Um, and what's an interesting idea is having it like pre-cut but still on the baseball and together with the student taking that off of the baseball and putting it together onto a backing so they can really see this was coming straight from you know the skin of the baseball was coming right off of the baseball and they mean the same thing Um, and then kind of continuing your calendar system but now using just that piece of the baseball um would be how you start moving from whole object to partial object or you could cut the baseball in half and then slowly move to just the skin of the baseball depending on how concrete they need um their symbols to be so kind of slowly over time moving from that whole object to smaller objects and yeah you're right as their language develops maybe they'll become a braille user and learn the word baseball and then that can be they can have a braille schedule system Mm
0: -hmm. when you say maybe would it be Mm -hmm. fair to say the expectation is they will and will teach them how to become a Braille user. Is that fair? That's a
4: great question. Well, you know, I I don't know. It really depends on our students. We've had some students that have come to preschool starting with whole objects, and then by now they're talking and they use photo schedules or they use line drawing schedules. Um, I have one of my students who is completely blind who started at objects and now she is using Braille. Um, So it also depends on, you know, it's totally different for every student I would say.
3: The other thing too is I think you know while we're moving along the whole objects because we have to think of when they go out into the community how practical is it for them to carry a whole bucket of objects and symbols to talk to whoever they want to engage with and so that's the reasoning for moving to smaller more concise sort of Um, representations of their whole objects and as we do that we're also signing we're teaching them sign we're trying to see what visual access they have for pictures and photos because eventually they could go to maybe a device like an, an ipad or a photo book or something like that so even though we're doing that it's everything else is paired at the same time just to see you know how functional can we make this eventually for them
0: Okay, well, you brought us there, so let's talk about that for a second. Because where I was in my brain was just teaching concepts, not necessarily communication. Um, Mm -hmm. So, like in the baseball scenario that we've been using, I don't even know how we got to baseball, but let's right, like, like like, you you probably it's because we're
3: from Massachusetts and we've got the Red Sox, so (laughs) (laughs) you
0: know, the Green Monster, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So. what does a communication system look like? Because we wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, you need baseball or hit on your communication device. I mean, yes, eventually, or yes, we want a part of a system to have hit. Um, I'm just going to say, what does it look like to have a communication system um, in uh, when you're working with somebody who is completely deaf and completely blind?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I have the student at our program who's completely deaf, completely blind. Um, this is a really interesting student because tactile, we use tactile sign language to communicate to her. She has a few signs that she knows, but um, her initiation is low in general. And then she hasn't picked up on signs as much. She doesn't totally love... Um, You know, interacting with other people. She's kind of an independent person, which is amazing for her, but it's difficult because she didn't pick up on tactile sign as much as we would have thought. So, what I did for her is I created kind of a wants and needs board that has partial object symbols um, that she is now starting to exchange and give to people to say, I need help, to say, "Um, I want more, um, because she hadn't picked up on like signs for more. Some um, deafblind students, you teach them tactile sign language, you tactile sign to them, and then they would be able to sign in the air back to you. Um, But for this particular student, she wasn't picking up on sign language. So we started introducing partial object symbols that could mean um, more, have more communicative functions. And she carries those with her in a leather bag along with her schedule throughout her day.
0: Amber, okay. So tell me if this is fair. So she wasn't picking up on sign language, uh, tactile sign language It means you're, she's, she's feeling you while you do the sign, right? She's feeling yeah. your hands while you're doing the sign. Yep. So how do you know that tomorrow wasn't the day she's going to pick up on it? Like, how did you decide this is the, or is it you're still doing both? We're going to use this mm-hmm. and continue along with tactile sign because exactly. maybe that's how she learns it.
4: Exactly. Yeah, you got it. So we, we've never stopped doing tactile sign language. We t- still tactically signed her all the time throughout her day, um, but she wasn't expressing sign um, even with prompting. So that's when I was thinking, okay, we need another kind of system to help. Um, in addition to you know us continuing to sign with her, but now she needs a way to communicate with us because she wasn't expressively signing. She's also I'm um, older, around twenty now. So um, it was getting to the point where like, okay, she's twenty years old. She's still not tactilely or signing to us. Um, it's time for something else
0: mm-hmm.
4: in addition to us t- assigning to her.
2: A big part of working with the deafblind population that I've found is trial and error. With that being said, um, being consistent and giving things a real long enough try to see if that is a mode that's gonna continue to support the student. Um, we're consistently communicating with mul- multiple modes, um, but it also changes over time. So sometimes, something does work and sometimes it doesn't, you need to hit the drawing board and brainstorm again and do some feature matching and see if anything's out there, Um, work with the whole team, kind of come together to find where the communication strengths are, how to build upon them and where areas of need are. And nothing is really that static. So we wanna stay predictable and consistent for our students, but a year or two years also could look pretty different. So when we think about language development, Um, going from a whole object to a partial object, eventually perhaps to tangible symbols if they can be on the smaller side using those backings like Amber was talking about. So even if the student isn't quite academically learning about the difference between a noun and an adjective, there is some both visual and tactual difference with those symbol backings that's just giving them that little extra information, just like you'd see perhaps on a high-tech system that uses green to represent verbs, not necessarily meaning that's ex- that's the explicit goal of intervention. It's just information that's there. It's a little color cue um, if they're accessing with vision. And if they're not, they feel the same. However, the top, it's either scalloped or it's triangular. Um, it's that little cue. And then we wanna meet the student where they're at. So if we're at a tactile symbol, um, so going from that whole object to the partial object to the tactile or tangible symbol, they're, they're synonymous. Um, we wanna think about those core words to, to bridge with the um, perhaps really fringe or unique vocabulary word that's very important to our students. So light up toys are really, really popular for our for our population, especially things with movement and lots of bright lights, we have a lot of fans of. So something like pairing a, a bit arbitrary symbol for want with a tangible symbol for my light up globe that perhaps you went through the whole symbol transition from the whole spinner to just the sphere, that's the most fun part of it. Um, Maybe what they really like is the button that turns it on and off. We have excellent engineers on campus that are able to kind of deconstruct toys in a way to keep their function that the student really resonates with, or that from our observation, we view them resonating with, mounting that. And then you're pairing it with that symbol of want, light up spinner, and just giving that exposure um, and eventually you might see them expressively saying what they want, what they don't want. We're embedding those opportunities kind of throughout the day, but it, it could really look different from, I don't want to say month to month because we we give things a real long chance. The consistency change does not usually happen fast. We want to give things a real chance, but also be comfortable hitting a brainstorm table, figuring out what's working and what's not and thinking forward, thinking, thinking about next steps. because because there's growth to be had.
4: Yeah. Um, I'd love to add that, you know, Neha talked a lot about total communication and the fact that we model so many different modes of communication for our students to help in their understanding of language and communication, but also we accept any mode that they communicate using. So whether they're communicating with their body language, we're saying, I see you're upset, or I see you're so happy right now. Whether they're using objects, whether they're using speech, whether it's sign language, whether it's AAC. um, I think that, you know, kind of our theme today has been total communication and how individualized everything is here. And I just wanted to mention that um, it's hard to um, talk about AAC and the deafblind population because there are so many different communication methods, communication devices that um, you see even just at our program. So um, like you were saying, Emily, feature matching is really important. And if you want to go into maybe one of your examples, Emily, of how you kind of, you know, Found out what system would be the best for one of your students. Um, it's again, it's just going to be one student out of so many who have so many different kinds of um, devices. But
2: is it a good t- good time for that, Chris? Or did you yeah, want to? Yeah, perfect. Perfect. perfect, Yeah, yeah? okay. okay. <laughs> um, I was just, just thinking, mean... just thinking about language expansion. So for a student example of mine, he was us- using tactile symbols. Um, really, really beautifully. So we ended up getting a trial of a prox talker in, and we put the little chips that come with the prox talker, tangible symbols over those chips with really strong adhesive tape. Next thing you know, I'm putting out sentence strips, kind of like I want, and then he was making his choice, um, his leisure time choice. So that's what he was working on, is that choice making. I was pairing that with kind of a sentence starter, I want blank. So I saw over time he was tactually kind of exploring each page. He's looking through it. He does access with a little bit of vision, um, but he's kind of feeling all the symbols. He's he's flipping the pages in the Prox Talker carrying bag of all of his symbols, looking through. And eventually he he stopped tactually scanning. He started visually scanning. So he's I'm just noticing him stop touching every page. He's looking, then he grabs the symbol, puts it on the Prox Talker. Once he became so automatic visually looking, I, I hit the drawing board and I said, let's try something with a photo, a real photo of his tangible symbols. Let's just see how that would go. Because I do think the uh, tactile support and how different each symbol felt was supporting him learning. But I was kind of curious because he, he was tricking me a little. I was like, I think there's some more vision happening right now where um, I think he's using his sense of vision more than he was. So he got kind of used to his symbols, he knew where they were, they were predictable. I tried a, um, we got a trial going of a NovaChat device with a key guard. And I just put, I made the first overlay of, you know, iPad and walk, which were his favorite symbols. He's a mover and a shaker. And oh man, does he love an iPad game? So I put those on the front and I used that symbol. Um, immediately, he was like, iPad, yes, go for a walk. Yes, using those symbols. And then I used that symbol placement to bridge for want and go, because he had been exposed to it for so long that then he was saying, go, walk, want, iPad. And then I expanded it. I put all of his toys in there. And that happened actually over just less than a week. He took to it like that. And I do think that those strategic steps that were put into place, kind of going slow, but following his lead. And now he has a complete, um, he has a complete vocabulary in his device, I, I think those steps, taking a tiny step back to make a huge leap forward went a really long way because he was really able to grasp what we're getting at. I think a lot of language around him is lost because of his dual sensory impairment. So bringing it to him made a really big difference. And then he actually doesn't access with, um, with much hearing. So he does have a little bit of hearing just like vision but not so much. So I wanted to make sure that, yes, this is a voice output device, but I wasn't as sure if voice output was the most important part of the feature matching. How do I know he knows he's activated the system? Because he's expecting a response um, to kind of open up some social opportunities with peers, with other staff, new people in the community. So then then the feature matching becomes what systems can have visual effects and haptic effects and looking into what exists, what doesn't exist. Um, The NovaChat ended up being a a nice fit for him with the Bluetooth volume all the way up. It does have some vibrate. We have everything expand as he clicks it with an outline. He knows exactly when it's been activated and when he needs to try again, Um, and also using his residual hearing, so kind of multimodal way at that, but sometimes it's not as clear cut. Sometimes we're talking to local engineers. Um, There's a lot of engineering students I'd recommend to reach out to local universities and colleges near you engineering students and robotics clubs they often need projects and that's a really good way to introduce them to the field maybe adding light as voice output comes if they're deaf and they you want you know a vibration or a light activating it's a way to be creative and give them more access to um, what others may incidentally have had access to
0: Awesome. Awesome. Amber, you had mentioned a frame of some sort. What did you mean by that? Oh,
2: yeah. Um,
4: so um, that's a great question. Um, before we go into that, I just wanted to give you one more example of um one of my students who um kept, you know, he was making choices from whole objects. And I was trying to move to see if we could move to an image level. And I was pairing the object with the image right in front of it to see if he was able to understand I I can just touch the image. I don't need to take the whole object. The image and the object are the same. And it was too far a step. And actually Neha was the one who um, told me to try plexiglass. I don't know if other people know of this, but putting the object behind plexiglass showed him that he didn't need to fully grab and take the object. He could point to the object and I would give it to him. So it was almost starting to bridge the 3D to the 2D. And now he's finding the images of his toys on his high-tech iPad device by himself. And um, that was just a smaller, but I I would not have thought of plexiglass, (laughs) just putting a sheet of plexiglass in it, maybe in a week he figured it out. So um, just another really cool, um, little tidbit. Um, so going to the frames, um, I was talking about something called active learning. Um, I don't know if a lot of people have heard of active learning, but um, it's an approach that was created by Dr. Lily Nielsen. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, our students becoming prompt dependent, becoming passive. Um, they have a lot of stuff done to them in their lives and um, because of that they can become passive, become tactilely defensive. They think maybe just people will bring them things. But we want to make sure that we're teaching them to be active learners and participants in their world and that they have a world around them first things first, and that second thing second, they can reach out and interact with that world. Um, So one way that we do that is by having active learning frames and um, different objects hanging from those frames. And we position it in a way that the student could maybe accidentally bump into it and then start to realize, oh, there's something there, and slowly start reaching out and exploring that object. Um, and you can put objects on there. That's like a big cup and a smaller cup. And maybe they see that one cup can go in and they're kind of starting to build those foundational basic concepts of in and out. And, um, really as our job, um, in that is to not be doing anything and to be observing. Um, we want to be teaching them that they can actively participate in their worlds, um, independently. And if we kind of start joining in, then that's, you know, defeating the purpose a little bit. We don't, you know, we're trying to help them to become active learners and not realize that they don't have to rely on adults intervention. Do you know what I mean? So um, we use that a lot for our earlier um, developing students. Um, As long as I believe you're under the age of four developmentally, is that correct? Then this approach would be appropriate. Developmentally
2: developmentally up to 48 months.
4: 48 Um, months, thank you. So, yeah, so as long as your student's developmentally below 48 months, then it would be appropriate for them. And a two year old knows a lot of stuff. So um,
0: let me ask you this. Let me go back to when you were talking about having the background images or the background textures be different and giving some more um, sort of residual, uh, or um, what's the right word? Context, residual context to what you're sure. talking about. Um, Something that a connection I was making was to the three D symbols from um, from Project Core. Yeah, have you have you use because the those three D symbols that are printed have different ridges around the outside. Yep. Do you use that is that something similar? Is that a is like yeah, Chris, that's it, or no, 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 Chris, that's totally different. What's uh... I think
2: that's I think that's an excellent resource when we're talking about resources for people to take from this podcast and like to continue their learning. Um, we've liked by American Printing House for the Blind by APH, the tactile connections kit. We've been using those backings a little bit more. Um, the project core, what's great about that is right online, You they have the instructions to go right ahead and 3D print all the symbols, take the brainstorm out, you can have a universal kind of tactile language between two students, how excellent for them to kind of um, be able to share that. We. We do like to keep the caveat in mind that language development is going to be so individualized for each student. So kind of for those really preferred nouns, those favorite, favorite things, we're way more likely to do something just based on exactly how the student's interacting with it, really observing. You know, if the push button is more what they like or the actual globe that vibrates and has those lights, that on the same light up spinner for two different students, we may use a different piece. But for those bridge words that are kind of bringing the access to the language development, I would absolutely recommend checking out Project Core. Um, The the feel of the symbols will be the same. Um, We've liked the flat backings for putting something on, but what I have liked is taking out the brainstorm and kind of uh, just able to get, get some language right away in Uh, when you have especially less um, time, resources. We have our whole day dedicated to deafblind students. So I do understand that that is not um, the case that everyone's in and the importance is bringing them symbolic communication and exposure. Um, Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired also has a dictionary of their tactile symbol library. So that's free and accessible online where you can see all the symbols they are using um, we've been working on kind of cataloging some of ours, but they're they're ahead of the game on kind of having a whole dictionary logged. Um, and along with the APH tactile connections kit, they have a whole book of ideas that can represent all these different concepts because you don't always have to start from scratch. You want to keep the individualization in mind, especially for those, those fringe concepts and, you know, the really salient things that they love every day. But want or like doesn't necessarily have to be as concrete because there's really no way to make it too concrete. So finding things that are already out there will make your life easier and also um, kind of get rid of the barrier of not knowing where to start because there's a lot of places to start. So those are some resources I would check out right off the bat.
3: And the other thing, too, is you can always get materials from those resources. And then as you get to know your student, you can try to customize that individual symbol like you know the go symbol is that green arrow but like emily said it really does feel the same in terms of texture of all the other symbols because they're just 3d printed but you know maybe you add like fake grass on the go and you just glue it right on top a hot glue gun goes a long way guys and then remember
4: to go touch the grass outside if that's your
3: you know what i mean right but you can customize the already made symbols if you feel like the texture needs to be a little bit more prominent.
2: In a similar yet different way, a lot of what we do also is um, switches feel the same if you're not accessing with vision. Some will be smaller, some will be um, a a little bit larger in their face size. But we're, we have some students who are two-step scanners and they know that one of their switch functions is to scan and one's to select, but their select has a bumpy texture. So it feels different and is visually different. They're accessing with a bit of vision. We're Of course, we're using different color switch faces, maybe one's small, one's large. But don't be afraid to add some texture. Could also draw some visual attention by adding some crunchy mylar to the front if you're kind of bringing attention over to the switch. Be creative. There, There's not a right or wrong there's just following the child's lead and interests, and bridging that with what you know about what's available with assistive tech and you know merging that with the student and what they know and love
0: well, something mm-hmm. I certainly heard you all sort of mention is like, Amber, you were telling the story of the plexiglass and how Neha helped you kind of think think of something you hadn't thought of before. And then Emily, you were talking about reaching out to the students at Harvard to get the, or whoever, I'm joking, but you said reach out to <laughs> other disciplines to like people working in maker spaces and yeah. crafty people who like the, who, who sort of understand what glue will stick on what surfaces, do you know what I mean, who have experience there, You you, you build out your, your network in that way. um, That seems like great advice for parents as well. Meaning um, there's other people out there that have kids that uh, have deafblindness and are learning with these sensory impairments uh, or sensory, let me, let me change that. Uh, These sensory abilities that are different than other people. So, or sensory disabilities. So, or disabilities that are related to sensory. (laughs) Um, So, I, I how can you help um, or how can we help parents find each other?
3: A so really good place to start is with the students' team. Um, we're fortunate that we're immersed in that every day, but the interdisciplinary team is huge. You've got classroom teachers, OT, PT, speech, audiology, you know, the teacher of the visually impaired, the teacher of the deaf and hard of hearing, the assistive tech person, the social work, you know, the psychologist, it takes a whole village. Um, so they, and each discipline has specific resources that people can um, access for their specific discipline. So we work really closely with OTs and PTs and um, the OMs and uh, the orientation mobility, everybody, we work together, but and so you can really get student specific information from those disciplines, but sort of globally, you know, there's the National um, Commission for Deaf Blindness, which is a great resource for connecting families kind of across the nation, but then they also help find supports within their states. And then every state um, or I think major city Boston has one, but Massachusetts also has one—a deaf, blind, or in deaf community resource for them to go um, to, reach out to help find outside sources. Or, you know, we're fortunate at Perkins to have a program here, but Perkins also has specialists that can go into the public schools to help support students that fit our profile that are out in the mainstream and inclusive classrooms. Um, and then, of course, you know, talking to whoever their, you know, support system is friends in the same classrooms. Um, but yeah, there's definitely the National Commission for deaf And then Massachusetts has also um, Deaf-Blindness and Blind, the Commission for Blind as well. And parents can get a lot of support for from these companies at home within their community and at school, which is great. Because oftentimes in school, we're we're not allowed or able to go into the communities and help bridge that gap a little bit. But these programs out there really do offer that support.
2: Another thing too, um, our school, we happen to have a large number of our student population with CHARGE syndrome. So, you know, with the CHARGE syndrome community, there's a yearly conference. The time of our recording right now, it happens to be Right now we have a number of staff and students attending, and it's a really nice way for um, across the whole country, different families uh, with the child or a student who has CHARGE syndrome to connect, I think with a lot of um, these rare syndromes to find a Facebook page, look to connect with other resources. Um, and just to add to the list, Neha was, was starting the DeafBlind International has really nice resources um, that are outside of just what America has to offer, which is a lot, but also there's European connections and Australian connections. So with the incidents being low and these are still being more rare cases compared to other populations, it is important to kind of rely on each other and see what other people have learned, found to work, found to be successful and build that community. It's really important because I, I know it could feel isolating for a lot of the families we work with. So supporting them, bridging those, those gaps and that they're not the only one is, is really beneficial.
0: I think some,
4: some things that are helpful for families too. Um, a lot of my families are looking for like activities to do with their, with their, um, children. So I think, you know, thinking about that active learning approach, if there's something that if their student is below that 48 months developmentally, then having active learning frames and materials at home is something that parents can set up for their um, children and keep them engaged in learning. Um, And then also switch adapted toys. We didn't really go into like cause and effect and stuff like that. But I have a lot of students who are using switches, whether they're environmental switches, one on the door, that means go, one next to their communication book, that means I want, or whether they're at kind of like the beginning levels of switch learning and using a switch for cause and effect. Switch adapted toys are something that um, I feel like are great for parents to have at home. There's, you know, Makers Making Change and a few other resources um, about how to even switch adapt your own toys online. So I think that's also something that, you know, a lot of our parents are saying, like, what can I do at home to kind of continue helping and definitely reach out to the team? But those are a few things that
0: um, could be helpful. Awesome. What did we miss? What didn't we talk about that everybody should know?
2: I can't emphasize enough how quickly you should type into a Google search, activelearningspace.org and learn (laughs) about the active learning approach. It's really a game changer. And I think it's really important for it to be more widely spread because seeing the gains our students make when we bring things to them and kind of encourage them to come out of their own internal shell and explore outwardly makes such a difference for for communication, for language development, for interaction in their world. So um, that's activelearningspace.org. It's such an excellent resource. There's activities on that website. There's webinars to learn from. Um, This approach is something that I'd love to see talked about at more conferences and presentations, because we see it every day making such a difference for so many of our students um, becoming more autonomous communicators and living independent lives. Yeah, I think Um, also- The other thing I was gonna say too,
3: is I know we're all research-based and evidence-based practice, and all of that is so important. Um, But number one, you're super lucky if you have a deafblind student on your caseload. Number two, there is, very little research out there and that can be frustrating and we just want to assure you that you have such a, as a speech path, you have such a foundation for knowing the trajectory of development and language development and all of that. So don't be afraid to look at research out there that might be for students that have multisensory impairments or um, that are MDVI, right? You might wanna look at some of the research out there for students that aren't specifically categorized as deafblind, but they do have more maybe cognitive um, differences that you could look at. So don't be afraid that there's no deafblind research out there. Don't be afraid to try new things, but also be really creative and critical in your thinking for when you're trying to figure out how to best approach a student.
0: Amber, were you going to add something?
2: I was just going to um, repeat like
4: predictability and routine and you know sticking to that calendar system can be so important for our students who are deaf you know how, making sure that they know kind of what's coming next um i think something fun that we didn't really talk about are story boxes or experience stories and using whole objects um to tell a story with a student or a song boxes we have like the wheels on the bus box um you know with that Emily made with the windshield wipers and actually has real windshield wipers in it. And we sing Wheels on the Bus and we play with all these fun things. And it's nice to kind of include objects. And, you know, if you want to do like a fun activity, those are really great ways to um, have a student engaged. And then coactive movement is another um, topic that we didn't talk about, but it's also really interesting. Um, and it's kind of like you and the student are moving together and then it's hopefully um, leading to the student kind of anticipating that movement. And so you're doing a movement and you stop and then you see if the student will begin that movement again. Um, that's another kind of deaf mind teaching principle. That's really, it was interesting for me to learn what's starting here.
0: If we only had a hundred dollars, but this is a lot of great resources that you shared for people to what ideas. And then when they want to de- go deeper, they can go to our show notes where we'll have all the links that everything you've mentioned, um, where do people reach out to you?
2: You can reach out to us um, by email. So, all of our emails will be pretty clear cut with our first and last names. So, my name being Emily Macklin, M A C K L I N. So, it'd be Emily period Macklin at Perkins.org. Um, and that'll follow suit for kind of the rest of the team. So, amber.scary at Perkins.org, S K E R R Y and Neha, which is spelled N-E-H-A, dot Sharma, S-H-A-R-M-A, at Perkins.org. I think that's the best way, um, and we'd love to connect with,
0: with others in the community. Excellent. Do you have time for one last question? Absolutely. Yeah. So the way I like to end the interviews is to ask you, as uh, curious people that got into this field and continue to be curious, what is something that's in your space right now that you're curious about? What sort of uh, information you're questing after or something that has got you going, hmm, you know what, this is what I i am searching Instagram or, you know, what, what's uh, what's got you curious.
4: That's a great question. I know there's like <laughs> this
3: big expectant
4: pause. <laughs> I feel like I learn like new things every day from working here and from my students. Um, I feel like I don't, this is even going back to grad school, like uh, deaf-blindness was really not talked about at all, so I came into this position knowing close to nothing except what I could look up on my own, so I come across things that I didn't even know that I should be asking about. And then learning about them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to a conference next week, that's the DeafBlind International Conference, so I'm really curious to see how people in other countries work with deaf um, deafblind individuals. I think that that's going to be really interesting, especially um, people from countries who might not have as much as we have. You know, luckily being at Perkins, the resources are endless, but um, you know, getting creative when you don't have those kind of resources or Um, You know, iPads are so accessible here, but in Argentina, they cost so much more. So what apps do you use when you can't have an iPad? Do you know what I mean?
0: Awesome. Awesome. You know, something you touched on there, Amber, I just want to mention it real quick is that um, I know that this particular podcast has many students that listen because maybe either they're curious themselves or because it's been assigned. And there's sometimes a, a feeling, I know I certainly had it when I was a student, like, ah, I made it. Yeah, yeah. when really it's, yeah, you made it. Now you have a job and the learning really continues. And Amber, your story there really emphasizes that, right? Like I got a job and yeah, my grad school helped a little. (laughs) I mean, my schooling up, but now it's really the learning continues on on my own, right? And that's why I like to end with this question.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and I think for me, Um, A lot of it is not necessarily things that I'm more curious about now, but more how to kind of take what I've experienced and kind of move to the next step. So for me, I can't do what I need to do if I don't talk to the PT about seating positioning, if I don't talk to the OT about their sensory profile or their fine motor skills, because they might not be able to isolate a finger. So I'm not even going to go down a direct selection sort of method. And so for me, my, the hill I'm going to die on is how are we all working together? And so it's easy for us to maintain our silos because we are the communication specialists and this is what we do, but realizing that I can't do what I need to do unless I know and have input from everybody on the team. And, you know. Working in a school, we're so fortunate to have all those professionals right there all day, every day. And so working with the classroom teacher because, you know, they have these students all day. They have multiple hours and to, back to back with them. We have a couple half hour sessions a week, and then we bring them back. So, um, really looking how can I improve? you know, my practice with the students, but by making sure I really consider all angles of that child and all the specialists involved. And, you know, how can we actually change our service delivery? Um, that is something that I'm really looking to see more inclusive opportunities, more co-treats. We have a vocational department here that is so robust, and so how can I go into the vocational department and help support students so that they are ready for their adult life? You know, just examples like that. So, less for me to learn for myself, but learn as a whole team is going to be kind of my direction going forward. For me,
1: uh,
2: kind of a brainstorm process that I've gotten so much stuck but been in for a while is keeping the really tactile so the whole object users and the ones who need larger they're often less portable objects Um, also symbolizing really large things such as like a trampoline is is pretty tricky so finding more ways to make concrete representations um, and if you're unable just pair 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 and give a lot of repeated opportunities Um, but with the larger less portable systems making sure they still have access full language access um, and kind of meeting robust language access with their needs of where they're at um, and their sensory profile so being a real critical thinker strategically if you're able to making things a little smaller if it's accessible and then um, opening more doors for for even more and then what's a really great carrying case where they still have access when they're in on the move Um, We've tried different things like a rolly suitcase or a backpack, but you want them to have access to language in transit, too. So is it kind of a flip book that they wear crossbody? And, you know, it it can get kind of tricky and there's not a ton out there. So also, as we're reaching out to other professionals in the field, this is something that we think about a lot. Because what we want our students to do is not just use these symbols in a contrived speech therapy session. We want them using them in the community, in their classrooms, um, all day, every day. So any way we can continue to streamline, improve accessibility is a, a really good step in the right direction and absolutely a win. So even beyond the school setting where we have a little bit less control of what the home setting or the community opportunities may look like, the best we can do is set them up for success, have a streamlined system, where they're, um, they're ready to show off their skills outside of school as well. So that's just something that is a tricky but not impossible task. And it's something that we consistently think about and are excited for people to reach out to us, about things that have worked for them, or, oh, I'm in a similar kind of, um, kind of place on this, and here's what I've tried. And we're happy to kind of share about that too.
0: Okay, let me see if I can summarize all of that. So, Emily... Um... I heard you say sort of a robust language system that works in every environment. Mm -hmm. And I heard Neha say, and the way you get that is you work with everybody and you listen to everybody and you pull the whole team together to figure out how you're going to do that. And Amber, you say, we do that across the world. We're going to do that in in cultures. um, That is not just the one we're living in, but you're going to go learn how other places are doing it and share back the information we've learned. So it spreads across the globe. Sounds good to me. Let's do that. (laughs) Uh, thank you so much for taking your time for being on the talking with tech podcast and we really look forward to continuing this relationship with you and learning from you and sharing information on our website and for all the great stuff yet to come so thank you
3: thank Thank you so so much it's a pleasure